0: Thank you very much. Um, I hope I can pick up on some of the points that were mentioned uh, by the previous uh, speakers, because I think Jean Seaton raised some very interesting questions of understanding the structure of media systems, and Ken Banks also focused on the context. So I very much hope that we can continue with some of those areas today. I want to speak about, um, specifically I'll be speaking about questions on researching and information ecology. And by this, I mean how can we take a more comprehensive look at the role of the both in terms of its context and its different forms, and how can we also better understand the role of the media in governance in conflict in post-conflict situations. And what I'm presenting today is also very much a work in progress, so I look forward to having um, your comments and feedback as well. I'm currently involved in a research project, in a multi-year research project in Somalia. Recently, the United Nations and the African Union established a radio station in Nairobi that's broadcasting into Mogadishu to support the African Union and United Nations peacekeeping troops. And our research is looking at how we can better understand the information ecology in Somalia beyond the formal mass media to try and better understand the impact and relevance of this new radio station. And this, this work builds on earlier research I've been involved in in northern Somaliland, which, which, which is the northern area of Somalia, and I'll mention a little bit more about that later, where I, together with colleagues and local researchers, um, have been looking at other, have been trying to understand the relationship between media and governance. And so we carried out a study that looked at information flows in regions of Somaliland where there was a strong government presence, um, notably in the west of the country, and in areas where there was a weaker government presence, notably in the east of the country. And today, rather than presenting the findings from my research, I want to discuss the more general questions that I think that this research um, raises, particularly the framework of analysis that we're working on developing, and I hope that it can also be applicable to other conflict situations, particularly places in Africa or Afghanistan or Yemen. Um, much of the emphasis so much of the emphasis on media in conflict or peace building focuses on the relationship between the media and the state. And the prevailing approach is that media freedoms should be an important part of a post-war peace process. Weak governments or fragile states in Africa are under significant, international pref- under significant international pressure to demonstrate that they're viable states and that they're strong enough to tolerate a free media and also strong enough to foster one. It signifies a respect for human rights, that they practice good governance, that they're democratic, and you see a huge emphasis on media freedoms very similar to the emphasis on elections. It's very symbolic. Um, states are judged according to how well they meet a certain normative idea of a free media. And here we, this is just a very small snapshot of um, a Freedom House Press Freedom Index, where they ask questions about the legal environment, the economic environment, and the political environment. But I think that this approach is largely built around assumptions of state-centered governance. And they focus on the relationship between the mass media and the central government. The approach focuses on media freedoms but it tells very little about how the media actually function particularly in non vibarian states or fragile states. So viewing the role of the media through the state-centered prism and relying on research frameworks that do so I would argue can actually cloud in some respects a a deeper reality of the role and development of the media or expression more generally particularly in fragile and conflict states. And in a similar vein. I think that there's something of a templates approach to constructing or reconstructing media systems in post-conflict environments. And we've seen this in Afghanistan and we've seen this in Iraq, we see this around the world. And here I'm very much generalizing, but uh, but typical post-conflict or transitioning strategies involve setting up as many so-called independent media outlets as possible. This has been very much the case in Afghanistan. Adopting or adapting standard media laws, usually done through a similar pool of international consultants or NGOs, many of them are based here in Europe. And um, particularly if it's a British-led intervention, as we saw in Iraq, uh, the media assistance is um, often focused on how to transition the state broadcaster to a public service broadcaster. But in an effort to better understand the media in fragile states, I think that there's a need to move away from this idealized notion of state-centered governance. And while it very much may be an end to aspire towards, the transfer of Western institutions into conflict situations has frequently failed. So in the case of Somalia, I'm very interested in what the media actually means in a country where there's little or nothing appears to be working at first glance by way of a formal government. So where can we look to understand this and what kinds of questions should we be asking if we're not asking the type of questions, for instance, proposed by Freedom House? So government, governance in Somalia is very complex and it's not uh, particularly uniform either. So, as I mentioned before, the northern area of Somaliland um, claimed independence in 1991 after a long guerrilla insurgency led by the Somaliland Somali National Movement. And here, this is an image of they had a radio station that operated during the guerrilla insurgency. They've claimed um, independence from the South, and they're requesting international recognition on the basis of colonial borders and good global citizenship. It has its own government, democratic elections, currency passports, etc. But in the South, however, they've been unable to establish a viable government. Somaliland, which here you can see it's it's the northern area, um, was colonized by the British, while the rest of Somalia was colonized by the Italians. And this is a major difference with South Somalia. While the British saw Somaliland as little more than a feeding pen for the British garrison across in the Gulf of Aden in Yemen, while Italy sought to develop a colony for the Italians and subsequently destroyed much of the local government and society. The media is also very different across this region. Um, There's dozens of radio stations actually, more than 24 currently broadcasting in Mogadishu alone, and there's many more across the rest of the country. The northern area of Somaliland does not have any independent radio stations, but there's more than 13 newspapers that are publishing in the capital city of Hargeisa. I think it's also interesting to note that the internet and telecommunications in Somalia has some of the best rates and fastest connections on the continent. Despite being one of, if not, the most war-ravaged place on earth, Somalia has experienced significant economic growth over the past 10 years and has had a higher rate of growth than many other African countries. And Peter Little wrote about this in a very interesting book, Economy Without a State, looking at how the economy actually functions in Somalia. So while much does not work in Somalia, I'm very interested in what is working and what is the role of the media in these processes. So to investigate this relationship between hybrid governance and communications, a colleague and I who's done um, much work on um, enabling environments, media enabling environments, and I have been developing what we've tentatively called an information diagnostics. And this diagnostic attempts to ask a different set of questions, um, but I hope that it can be a, a starting point for deeper analysis and perhaps even thinking comparatively about these issues. So the first point is um, considering power. And I know that a lot of people talk about power. We talked about it already this morning. But in the context of Somalia, we propose that greater emphasis should be placed on understanding the vernacular politics. And SIDA, the Swedish Development Organization, for example, has been very thoughtful in addressing this with their power analysis. But they've largely neglected to ask about the media. Understanding power relations, and particularly related to the media, has many dimensions. But I think just to give you one example of the type of questions we're interested in asking here, I think it's particularly important to consider the ideology of journalists. And so while in the West we often think of journalists as individuals that have gone to journalism school or underwent training because they have a love for the profession, when journalists do not behave as watchdogs, there's very much a tendency to blame it on corruption, government repression, or lack of professionalism and training. And this might all be true, but in Somaliland, for example, the press is largely dominated by former guerrilla fighters. And this is similar to that in many other Eastern African countries. And while this has changed um, slightly in recent years, the trend setting media and the press that have been most influential in the political debates are essentially um, run by former, former guerrilla fighters from the SNM. And they're largely, for instance, publishing in Hargeisa. And these are not necessarily journalists, but former fighters that have a very different agenda that we might think of in terms of traditional journalists. And in South Somalia in the 1990s, we saw a rise and proliferation of radio stations. And this was partly due to the lack of government regulation, but also very much the usefulness in the radio in terms of serving the interests of the warlord. So the two dozen radio stations that have sprung up primarily in Mogadishu have largely been financed um, and also have the expertise of the diaspora. Stations have also been opened in other regional capitals around Somalia, Galkayo, Baidoa, uh, Kismayo, but they've largely served clan, political, or economic interests. And this changed slightly in 2008 when al-Shabaab took over um, much of South Somalia, but it's a different form of regulation. Similar to the radios, um, almost all of the press freedom NGOs in Somalia are intensely political. So there's dozens from the Somali Journalist Rights Agency to the Somali Journalist Rights Association. And it's become essentially become an industry to access the significant international aid that's going into Somalia. And these organizations very much reflect the fierce competition for resources, as well as the political ambitions and clan, clan politics So I think we need to think very carefully about the different ways that media might be used. And on the second point um, is on culture of communication. And as I mentioned earlier with the Freedom House indexes, the mass media is often seen as the litmus test for freedom of expression. And I'm always quite surprised, for example, by actually how low Somalia might be ranked. But not only does the diagnostic approach suggest that we look beyond the mass media to other forms of communication or persuasion, such as sermons or poetry, it also suggests that we should look at how information flows. So Somaliland, for example, has a nomadic culture with a highly decentralized governance with little central authority. And many argue that this has actually been central to the issue of the Somalis' resistance towards a centralized government. But as the Somali scholar Bobay notes, that since pre-colonial times, Somalis have enjoyed a well-preserved pattern of freedoms, including freedom of speech and freedom of movement. And this is also exemplified in several proverbs, such as, the hunger for news is the worst, and the common greeting, iska waran, which means literally, tell the news. And so I'm always, uh, I've always noticed that there's actually, despite the fact that Somalia is regularly ranked as not free, it's actually the media is very vibrant there. And there is freedom of expression. There is freedom of debate and discourse. It's just in a different way, in different spaces. Um, historically, for example, in Somaliland, it's been poetry that's been the most important source of political news. And this doesn't show up on these kinds of um, analytical approaches. And in many cases, it remains the most trusted. And this is very much the case in the s and struggle. And here I have a quote from Yusuf Gabobe, who was a journalist now in Somaliland, who's talking about the importance of, um, the importance of poetry. So Som- Somalis guard their right to freedom of expression passionately. And if the media might not be operating in an optimal environment, there is a widespread and general sense that the government cannot restrict communication and information flow so easily. And this is particularly, for instance, in comparison to Ethiopia, where the legacy of feudal and a highly hierarchical government has led to a secretive and restricted culture of information, which has had a significant impact on information and expression. So turning to the third point of regulation the culture of communication has to affect how we consider media regulation and take freedom of information legislation for example again the case of Ethiopia it's one of the first continents on the it's one of the first countries on the continent to have passed this progressive law but it will take a major shift for Ethiopians to actually demand information and have the desire and confidence to ask for it the emphasis on media laws, particularly media law templates, can blur an understanding about how information is actually regulated as well. So in Somalia, where there's a very weak judicial system, state judicial system, hair law or customary law is present and is very prevalent. So under hair law, elders serve as judges mediating cases through precedents. Almost all disputes are settled this way. And in most cases, over 90% of the disputes are handled in such courts including the most serious cases involving journalists. So in 2007, for example, Yusuf Gabobe, the editor of the Hachouf newspaper, was arrested for insulting Prime Minister Riale's wife. He accused her of corruption in his newspaper. And while Yusuf was arrested, the charge was so significant that it was not held in the government courts, but it was mediated between clans in a hotel in Hargeisa. The negotiations that resulted in the final agreed compensation were lengthy, but the case was resolved and all parties were... Happy with it. So the the final the final aspect is the historical context and it's really important this is again we've spoken about it this morning but it's really important to consider the historical role of particular media and media interventions and it's very easy to assume that media freedom should be part and parcel of any post-conflict transition. Radio in Somalia has been very much a part of the conflict. And similarly, Somali didn't even have an official written alphabet until 1972. So as we mentioned before, poems have been one of the most important means of communication for both social and political issues. But nevertheless, weak governments or fragile states, particularly in Africa, are under this continued significant pressure to accept the proliferation of radios and newspapers. And while Somaliland has many independent newspapers, they do not have private radio stations. And this is in contrast with the South. But my research there has suggested that Somalilanders are actually very hesitant about having private radio stations. A significant number of people that we interviewed, around 50%, said that the radios should not be liberalized because of concerns that it would threaten social cohesion and be used for clans for particular agendas. And there's, a, some, there's an expression in Somaliland that they're, quote, hostages of peace, referring to the amount that people have sacrificed for peace. And after watching their brothers in the South slaughter themselves, Somalilanders are very reluctant to do anything that will disrupt this delicate balance. And they see the role that radios are playing in Mogadishu, or played in Mogadishu until 2008. So in conclusion, while the findings about private radio stations in Somaliland are not necessarily surprising. I think it also coincides with some of the debates we saw there about multi-party elections in 2003, where 10 years after the peace process, Somalilanders were hesitant um, and reluctant to shift to multi-party politics, arguing that their hard-earned peace should not just be jeopardized for international pressure or international concerns. And there's been a series of political economy literature, and here I'd say that I find much of the, I find much of the literature in the political economy field and governance field more relevant for this research where they've been arguing, this literature has been arguing that multi-party elections in post-war periods exacerbate political tensions and can actually hamper peace processes. But I don't think that there's been a similarly critical or cautious approach or discussion even around media liberalization in these situations. So in considering media in war and post-war situations, I think we need to be particularly careful about analyzing the process of governance, sequencing, and nation building. We need to study what's actually there rather than what type of government or state we would like to see in the future. Media freedoms, like human rights, do not exist in a political vacuum. And the state and nation building situation in many many African countries and many places around the world needs to be better understood before we start prescribing things.